Welcome back to episode 10. It's been a little while since I've been able to record. Uh, being a teacher, we uh, just had to kind of restart our remote learning, so that's what kind of pushed me away for the last week. Um, but I hopefully will finish uh, reading this audiobook over the next uh, three or four days. So hopefully we'll get through about 30 pages right now. We're still in part four. Uh, we're going to try to get from page 211 up to about to page 239. Toward the close of October, Castell's anti-plague serum was tried for the first time. Practically speaking, it was reused last card. If it failed, the doctor was convinced the whole town would be at the mercy of the epidemic, which would either continue its ravages for an unpredictable period or perhaps die out abruptly of its own accord. The day before Castell called on Ryu, Monsieur Othon's son had fallen ill, and all the family had to go into quarantine. Thus the mother, who had only recently come out of it, found herself isolated once again. In deference to the official regulations, the magistrate had promptly sent for Dr. Ryu the moment he saw symptoms of the disease in his little boy. Mother and father were standing at the bedside when Ryu entered the room. The boy was in the phase of extreme prostration and submitted without a whimper to the doctor's examination. When Ryu raised his eyes, he saw the magistrate's gaze intent on him, and behind the mother's pale face. She was holding a handkerchief to her mouth. Her big, dilated eyes followed each of the doctor's movements. He has it, I suppose, the magistrate asked in a toneless voice. Yes, Ryu gazed down at the child again, but their other mother's eyes widened yet more, but she still had said nothing. Monsieur Othon, too, kept silent for a while before saying in an even lower tone, Well, doctor, we must do as we are told to do. Ryu avoided looking at Madame Othon, who was still holding her handkerchief to her mouth. It needn't take long, he said rather awkwardly, if you let me use your phone. The magistrate said he would take him to the telephone, but before going, the doctor turned to Madame Othon. I regret very much indeed, but I'm afraid you'll have to get your things ready. You know how it is. Madame Othon seemed disconcerted. She was staring at the floor. Then, I understand, she murmured, slowly nodding her head. I'll set about it at once. Before leaving, Ryu, on a sudden impulse, asked the Othons if there wasn't anything they'd like him to do for them. The mother gazed at him in silence, and now the magistrate averted his eyes. No, he said, then swallowed hard, but save my son. In the early days, a mere formality, quarantine had now been reorganized by Ryu and Robert on very strict lines. In particular, they insisted on having members of the family of a patient kept apart. If unawares one of them had been infected, the risks of an extension of the infection must not be multiplied. Ryu explained this to the magistrate, who signified his approval of this procedure. Nevertheless, he and his wife exchanged a glance that made it clear to Ryu how keenly they both felt the separation thus imposed on them. Madame Athan and her little girl could be given rooms in the quarantine hospital under Rambert's charge. For the magistrate, however, no accommodation was available except in an isolation camp the authorities were now installing in the municipal stadium, using tents supplied by the highway department. When Ryu apologized for the poor accommodations, Monsieur Athan replied that there is one rule for all alike, and it was pro only proper to abide by it. The boy was taken to the auxiliary hospital and put in a ward of ten beds, which had been formerly a classroom. After some twenty hours, Ryu had been convinced that the case was hopeless. The infection was steadily spreading, and the boy's body was putting up no resistance. Tiny, half-formed, but acutely painful buboes were clogging the joints of the child's puny limbs. Obviously, it was a losing fight. Under the circumstances, Ryu had no qualms about testing Castell's serum on the boy. That night, after dinner, they performed the inoculation a lengthy process, without getting the slightest reaction. At daybreak on the following day, they gathered around the bed to observe the effects of this test inoculation, on which so much hung. The child had come out of his extreme prostration and was tossing about convulsively on the bed. From four in the morning, Dr. Castell and Teru had been keeping watch and noting, stage by stage, the progress and remissions of the malady. Teru's bulky form was slightly drooping at the head of the bed, while its foot, with Ryu standing beside him, Castell was seated reading, with every appearance of calm, an old leather-bound book. One by one, as the light increased in the former classroom, the others arrived. Penelou, the first to come, leaned against the wall on the opposite side of the bed to Teru. His face was drawn with grief, and the accumulated weariness of many weeks, during which he had never spared himself, had deeply seamed his somewhat prominent forehead. Grand came next. It was seven o'clock, and he apologized for being out of breath. He could only stay a moment, but he wanted to know if any definite results had been observed. Without speaking, Ryu pointed to the child. His eyes shut, his teeth clenched, his features frozen in an agonized grimace. He was rolling his head from side to side on the bolster. When there was just light enough to make out the half-obliterated figures of an equation chalked on a blackboard that still hung on the wall at the far end of the room, Rambert entered, posting himself at the foot next to the bed. He took a package of cigarettes from his pocket. 
but, but after his first glance at the child's face, he put it back. From his chair, Castell looked at Ryu over his spectacles. Any news of his father? No, said Ryu. He's in the isolation camp. The doctor's hands were gripping the rail of the bed, his eyes fixed on the small, tortured body. Suddenly it stiffened and seemed to give a little, little at the waist, as slowly the arms and legs spread out X-wise. From the body, naked under an army blanket, rose a smell of damp wool and stale sweat. The boy had grated his teeth again. Then very gradually he relaxed, bringing his arms and legs back toward the center of the bed. Still without speaking or opening his eyes, and his breathing seemed to quicken. Ryu looked at Taru, who was hastily lowered his eyes. They had already seen children die. For many months, now death had shown no favoritism. But they had never yet watched child's agony minute by minute, as they had now been doing since daybreak. Needless to say, the pain inflicted on these innocent victims had always seemed to them to be, in fact, what it was, an abominable thing. But hitherto, they felt its abomination in, so to speak, an abstract way. They had never had to witness, over so long a period, the death throes of an innocent child. And just then, the boy had a sudden spasm, as if something had bit him in the stomach, and uttered a long, shrill wail. For moments that seemed endless, he stayed in a queer, contorted position, his body racked by convulsive tremors. It was as if his frail frame were bending before the fierce breath of the plague, breaking under the reiterated gusts of fever. Then the storm winds passed, and there came a lull. He relaxed a little. The fever seemed to recede, leaving him grasping for breath on a dank pestilential shore, lost in the languor that already looked like death. When for the third time the fire wave broke on him, lifting him a little, the child curled himself up and shrank away to the edge of the bed, as if in the terror of flames advancing on him, licking his limbs. A moment later, after tossing his head wildly to and fro, he flung off the bed. From between the inflamed eyelids, big tears welled up and trickled down the sunken, leaden-hued cheeks. When the spasm had passed, utterly exhausted, tensing his thin legs and arms on which, within forty-eight hours, the flesh had wasted to the bone, the child lay flat, racked on the tumbled bed, in a grotesque parody of crucifixion. Bending, Teru gently stroked with his big paw the small face stained with tears and sweat. Castell had closed the book a few minutes before, and his eyes were now fixed on the child. He began to speak, but had to give a cough before continuing, because his voice rang out so harshly. There wasn't any remission this morning, was there, Ryu? Ryu shook his head, adding, however, that the child was putting up more resistance than one would have expected. Penelu, who was slumped against the wall, said in a low voice, So if he is to die, he will have suffered longer. Light was increasing in the ward. The occupants of the other nine beds were tossing about groaning, but in tones that seemed deliberately subdued. Only one at the far end of the ward was screaming, or rather uttering little exclamations at regular intervals, which seemed to convey surprise more than pain. Indeed, one had the impression that even one, that even the, for the sufferers, the frantic terror of the early phase had passed, and there was a sort of mournful resignation in their present attitude toward the disease. Only the child went on fighting with all his little might, then, now and then, Ryu took his pulse, less, be less because this served any purpose than as an escape from his utter helplessness. And when he closed his eyes, he seemed to feel its tumult mingling with the fever of his own blood. And then, at one with the tortured child, he struggled to sustain him with all the remaining strength of his own body. But linked for a few moments, the rhythm rhythms of their heartbeats soon fell apart. The child escaped him, and again he knew of his impotence. Then he released the small thin wrist and moved back to his place. The light on the whitewashed walls was changing from pink to yellow. The first waves of another day of heat were beating on the windows. They hard, had hardly heard Grand saying that he would come back as he turned to go. All were waiting. The child, his eyes still closed, seemed to grow a little calmer. His claw-like fingers were feebly plucking at the sides of the bed. Then they rose, scratched the blanket over his knees, and suddenly he doubled up his limbs, bringing his thighs above his stomach, and remained quite still. For the first time, he opened his eyes and gazed at Ryu, who was standing immediately in front of him. In the small face, rigid as a mask of grayish clay, slowly the lips parted from them and rose a long, incessant scream, hardly varying with its respiration and filling the ward with a fierce, indignant protest. So little childish that it seemed like a collective voice issuing from all the sufferers there. Ryu clenched his jaws. True looked away. Rimbera went and stood beside Castell, who closed the book lying on his knees. Pinlu gazed down at the small mouth, fouled with the swords of sorties of plague and the pouring of angry death cry that had sounded through the ages of mankind. He sank on his knees, and all present found it natural to hear him say in a voice hoarse, but clearly audible across the nameless never-ending wail, My God, spare this child.
But the wail continued without cease, and other sufferers began to grow restless. The patient at the far end of the ward, whose little broken cries had gone on without a break, now quickened their tempo so that they flowed together in one unbroken cry. While the others' groans grew louder, a gust of sobs swept through the room, drowning Penelope's prayer, and Ryu, who was still tightly gripping the rail of the bed, shut his eyes, dazed with exhaustion and disgust. When he opened them again, Teresa sighed. I must go, Ryu said. I can't bear to hear them any longer. But then suddenly, the other sufferers fell silent. Now the doctor grew aware that the child's wail, after weakening more and more, had fluttered out into silence. Around him, the groans began again, but more faintly, like a far echo of the fight that was now over, for it was over. Castell had moved round to the other side of the bed and said the end had come. His mouth still gaping, but silent now, the child was laying among the tumbled blankets, a small, shrunken form with the tears still wet on his cheeks. Penelou went up to the bed, made the sign of benediction, then gathered up his cassock. He walked out by the passage between the beds. We have to start it all over again, Teru asked Estelle. The old doctor nodded slowly, with a twisted smile. Perhaps, after all, he put up a surprisingly long resistance. Ryu was already on his way out, walking so quickly and with such a strange look on his face that Penelou put out an armor check on when he was about to pass in the doorway. Come, doctor, he began. Ryu swung round on him fiercely. Ah, that child, anyhow, was innocent, and you know as well you know it as well as I do. He strode on, brushing past Penelou and walking across the school playground. Sitting on a wooden bench under the underneath the dingy stunted trees, he wiped off the sweat that was beginning to run into his eyes. He felt like shouting imprecations, anything to loosen the stranglehold, lashing his heart with steel. Heat was flooding down to the branches of the fig tree. A white haze spreading rapidly over the blue of the morning sky made the air yet more stifling. Ryu lay back wearily on the bench. Gazing up at the ragged branches, the shimmering sky, he slowly got back his breath and fought down his fatigue. He heard a voice behind him. Why was there that anger in your voice just now? What we've been seeing wasn't unbearable to me as it was to you. Ryu turned toward Penelou. I know. I'm sorry. But weirdness is a kind of madness, and there are times when the only feeling I have is one of mad revolt. I understand, Penelou said in a low voice. That sort of thing is revolting because it passes our human's understanding. But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. Ryu straightened up slowly. He gazed at Penelou, summoning to his gaze all the strength and firmer, fervor that he could muster against his weariness. Then he shook his head. No, father, I have a very different idea of love. Until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. A shade of disquietude crossed the priest's face. Ah, doctor, he said sadly. I've just realized what is meant by grace. Ryu had sunk back again on the bench. His lassitude had returned, and from its depths he spoke more gently. It's something I haven't got that I know, but I'd rather not discuss it with you. We're working side by side for the thing that unites us. Beyond blasphemy and prayers, and it's the only thing that matters. Penelou sat down beside Ryu. It was obvious that he was deeply moved. Yes, yes, he said. You two are working for man's salvation. Ryu tried to smile. Salvation is much too big of a word for me. I don't aim so high. I'm concerned with man's health, and for me, his health comes first. Penelou seems to de- seemed to hesitate. Doctor, he began, then he fell silent. Down his face, too, sweat was trickling. Murmuring, Goodbye for the present, he rose. His eyes were moist, and he returned to go. Ryu, who had seemed lost in thought, suddenly rose and took a step toward him. Again, please forgive me. I can promise there won't be another outburst of that kind. Penlu held out his hand, saying regretfully, And yet, I haven't convinced you. What does it matter? What I hate is death and disease, as well you know. And whether or not, whether you wish it or not, we're allies, facing them and fighting them together. Ryu was still holding Penelou's hand. So you see, believe her frame meeting the precise, God himself can't part us now. Since Ryu's, since joining Ryu's band of workers, Penelou had spent his entire time in hospitals and places where he came in contact with plague. He had elected for the place among his fellow workers that he judged incumbent upon him. In the forefront of the fight, and constantly since then, he had rubbed shoulders with death. Though theoretically immunized by periodical inoculations, he was well aware that at any moment death might claim him too, and he had given thought to this. Outwardly, he had lost nothing of his serenity, 
but from the day which he saw a child die, something seemed to change in him, and his face bore traces of the rising tension of his thoughts. When one day he told Ryu with a smile that he was working on a short essay entitled, Is a Priest Justified in Consulting a Doctor? Ryu had gathered that something gravely behind that question, than the priest's tone simply seemed to imply. On the, do on the doctor's saying he would greatly like to have a look at the essay, Penelius informed him that he would shortly be preaching at a mass for men, and his sermon would convey some at least considered opinions on the question. I hope you'll come, doctor. The subject will interest you. A high wind was blowing on the day Father Penelius preached his second sermon. The congregation, it must be admitted, was sparser than on the first occasion, partly because this kind of performance had lost its novelty for our townsfolk. Indeed, considering the abnormal conditions they were up against, the word novelty had lost all meaning. Moreover, most people, assuming they had not altogether abandoned religious observances, or did not combine them, naively with a thoroughly immoral way of living, had replaced normal religious practice by more or less extravagant superstitions. Thus, they were readier to wear prophylactic medals of St. Roche than go to Mass. An illustration may be found in the remarkable interest shown in the prophecies of all descriptions. True in the spring, when the epidemic was expected to end abruptly at any moment, no one troubled to take another's opinion as to its probable duration, since everyone had persuaded himself that, n that it would have none. But as the days went by, a fear grew up out of the calamity that might last indefinitely, and then the ending of the plague became the target of all hopes. As a result, copies of predictions attributed to soothsayers or saints of the Catholic Church circulated freely from hand to hand. The local printing firms were quick to realize the profit to be made, pandering to this new craze, and printed large numbers of the prophecies that had been going round in manuscript. Finding that the public appetite for this type of literature was still unsated, they had researchers made in municipal libraries for all the mental pabulum of the kind available in the old chrono chronicles, memoirs, and the like. And when this source ran dry, they commissioned journalists to write up forecasts, and in this respect at least, the journalists proved themselves equal to their prototypes of earlier ages. Some of these prophetic writings were actually serialized in our newspaper, and read with as much avidity as the love stories that had occupied these columns in the piping times of health. Some predictions were based on far-fetched arithmetical, arith arithmetical calculations involving the figures of the year, the tolls of deaths, and the number of months the plague had so far lasted. Others made comparisons of the great pestilences of former times, drew parallels, which is the for former forecasters called constants, and claimed to deduce conclusions bearing on the present calamity. But our most popular prophets were undoubtedly those who, in an apocalyptic jargon, had announced sequences of events, any one of which might be construed as applicable to the present state of affairs, and was obtruse enough to admit of almost any interpretation. Thus Nostradamus and St. Odelia were consulted daily, and always with happier results. Indeed, the one thing these prophecies had in common was that ultimately they were reassuring. Ultimately, though, the plague was not. Thus superstition had usurped the place of religion in the life of our town, and that is why the church in which Penelou preached his sermon was only three-quarters full. That evening, when Ryu arrived, the wind was pouring in with great gusts through the swing doors and filling the aisles with sudden drafts. And it was in that cold, silent church, surrounded by a congregation of men exclusively, that you watched the father climb into the pulpit. He spoke in a gentler, more thoughtful tone than on a previous occasion, and several times was noticed to be stumbling over his words. Yet many no yet more noteworthy change was that instead of saying you, he now said we. However, his voice grew gradually firmer as he proceeded, and he started recalling that for many months plague had been in our midst, we now know, knew it better after having seen it often seated at our tables or at the bedsides of those we loved. We had seen it walking in by our side or waiting for us, waiting for our coming at the places where we worked. Thus we were now perhaps better able to comprehend what it was telling us unceasingly, a message to which, in the first shock of the visitation, we might not have listened with due heed. What he, Father Perlou, had said in the first sermon still had, still had held good. Such, anyhow, was his belief. And yet, perhaps, as may befall any one of us, here he has struck his breast. His words and thoughts had lacked in charity. However, this might be one thing was not to be gainstained. A fact that always, under all circumstances, we should bear in mind. Appearances, notwithstanding all trials, however cruel, work together for good to the Christian. 
And indeed, what a Christian should always seek in his hour of trial was to discern that good, in what it consisted, and how best he could turn it to account. At this stage, the people near you seemed to be settled in against the armrests of their pews and make themselves as comfortable as they could. One of the big padded entrance doors was softly thudding in the wind, and someone got up to secure it. As a result, Ryu's attention wandered, and he did not follow well what Penelu was now went on to say. Apparently, it came to this. We might try to explain the phenomenon of the plague, but above all, should learn what it had to teach us. Ryu gathered that, to the father's thinking, there was really nothing to explain. His interest quickened when, in a more emphatic tone, the preacher said that there were some things we could grasp as touching God, and others we could not. There was no doubt as to the existence of good and evil, and, as a rule, it was easy to see the difference between them. The difficulty began when we looked into the nature of evil, and among evil things included human suffering. Thus, we had apparently a needful pain, and apparently needless pain. We had Don Juan cast into hell and a child's death. For while it was the right that a libertine should be struck down, we, saw, we see no reason for a child's suffering. And, truth to tell, nothing was more important on earth than a child's suffering the horror it inspires in us, and the reasons we must find to account for it. In other manifestations of life, God made things easy for us, and thus far, our original religion had no merit. But in this respect, he put us, so to speak, with our backs to the wall. Indeed, we were all up against the wall that plague had built around us. In the lethal shadow, we must work out our salvation. He, Father Penelope, refused to have recourse to simple devices enabling him to scale that wall. Thus he might easily have assured them that child's sufferings would be compensated for by an eternity of bliss awaiting him. But how could he give that assurance when, to tell the truth, he knew nothing about it? For who would dare to assert that eternal happiness can compensate for a single moment of human suffering? He who asserted that would not be a true Christian, a follower of the Master who knew all the pangs of suffering in his body and soul. No, he, Father Penelu, would keep faith with that great symbol of all suffering, and the tortured body on the cross. He would stand fast, his back to the wall, and face honestly the terrible problem of a child's agony. And he would boldly say to those who listen to his words today, My brothers, a time of testing has come for us all. We must believe everything or deny everything. And who among you, I ask, would dare to deny everything? It crossed through his mind that Father Penelope was dallying with heresy in speaking thus. But he had no time to follow up the thought. The preacher was declaring vehemently that this uncompromising duty laid on the Christian was at once his ruling virtue and his privilege. He was well aware that certain minds, schooled to more indulgent and conventional morality, might well be dismayed, not to say outraged, by the seemingly excessive standard of Christian virtue about which he was going to speak. But religion in a time of plague could not be the religion of every day. While God might accept and even desire that the soul should take its ease and rejoice in happier times, in periods of extreme calamity, he laid extreme demands on it. Thus today, God had vouchsafed to his creatures an ordeal such they might acquire and practice the grace of all virtues, that of the all or nothing. Many centuries previously, a profane writer had claimed to reveal a secret of the church by declaring that purgatory did not exist. He wished to convey that there could be no half-measures. There was only the alternative between heaven and hell. You were either saved or damned. That, according to Penelou, was heresy, and it could spring only from a blind, disordered soul. Nevertheless, there may well be of periods of history when purgatory could not be hoped for, periods when it was impossible to speak of venial sin. Every sin was deadly, and any indifference criminal. It was all, or it was nothing. The preacher paused, and you heard more clearly of the whistling wind outside, judging by the sounds that came in below the closed doors it had written to a storm pitch. When he heard Father Penelope's voice again, he was saying that the total acceptance of which he had been speaking was not to be taken in to the limited sense usually given to the words. He was not thinking of mere resignation or even that harder virtue, humility. It involved humiliation, but a humiliation to which a person humiliated gave full assent. True, the agony of a child was humiliating to the heart and to the mind, but that was why we had to come to terms with it, and that too was why, and here Penelope assured those present, that it was not easy to say what he was about to say. Since it was God's will, we too should will it. Thus and thus, only the Christian could face a problem squarely, and scorning subterfuge pierced to the heart of the supreme issue, the essential choice, and his choice would be to believe everything, so as not to be forced into denying everything. 
like those worthy women who, after learning about the buboes, were the natural issues through which the body cast out infection, went to church and prayed, Please, God, give him buboes. Thus the Christian should yield himself wholly to the divine will, even though it passed his understanding. It was wrong to say, This I understand, but that I cannot accept. We must go straight to the heart of which is unacceptable, precisely because it is thus that we are constrained to make our choice. The sufferings of children were our bread of affliction, but without this bread, our souls would die of spiritual hunger. The shuffling sounds which usually followed the moment when the preacher paused were beginning to make themselves heard when unexpectedly he raised his voice, making it as if he put himself in his hearer's place and asked them what the proper course to follow. He made no doubt that the ugly word fatalism would be applied to what he said. Well, he would not boggle the word, provided he were allowed to qualify it with an objective active. Needless to say, there were no questions of imitating the Abyssinian Christians of whom he had spoken previously, nor should one even think of acting like those Persians who in a time of plague threw their infected garments on the Christian sanitary workers and loudly called on heaven to give the plague to these infidels who were trying to avert a pestilence sent by God. But on the other hand, it would be no less wrong to imitate the monks at Cairo who, when plague was raging in the town, distributed the host with pincers at the mass so as to avoid contact with wet, warm mouths in which the infection might be latent. The plague-stricken Persians and the monks were equally at fault. For the former, a child's agony did not count. With the latter, on the contrary, the natural dread of suffering ranked highest in their conduct. In both cases, the real problem had been shirked. They had closed their ears to God's voice. But Penelope continued, there were other pre precedents of which he could now remind them. If the chronicles, chronicles of the Black Death at Marseille were to be trusted, only four of the 81 monks in the, Mer in the Mercy Monastery survived the epidemic, and of these four, three took to flight. Thus far, the chronicler, and it is not his task to tell us more than hear facts, but when he read that chronicle, Father Panlu had found his thoughts fixed on that monk who stayed on by himself, despite the death of his 77 companions, and above all, despite the example of his three brothers who had fled. And bringing down his fist on the edge of the pulpit, Father Panlu cried in the ringing voice, My brothers, each one of us must be the one who stays. There was no question of not taking precautions or failing to comply with the orders widely promulgated for the public wheel in the disorders of a pestilence. Nor should we listen to a certain moralist who told us to sink to our knees and give up the struggle. No, we should go forward, groping our way through the darkness, stumbling for times it haps, and try to do what good lay in our power. And for the rest, we must hold it fast, trusting in the divine goodness, even as to the deaths of little children, and not seeking personal respite. At this point, Father Panelou evoked the august, august figure of Bishop Belzunce, during the Marseille plague, he reminded his hearers now, hearers how, toward the close, close of the epidemic, the bishop, having done all that it behooved him, shut himself in his palace behind high walls after laying in a stock of food and drink with a sudden revulsion of fleeing, such as often comes in, in times of extreme tribulation. The inhabitants of Marseille, who had idolized him hitherto, now turned against him piled up corpses round his house in order to infect it, and even flung bodies over the walls to make sure of his death. Thus, in a moment of weakness, the bishop had proposed to isolate himself from the outside world, and lo and behold, corpses rained down on his head. This had a lesson for us all. We must convince ourselves that there is no island of escape in time of plague. No, there is no middle course. We must accept the dilemma and choose either to hate God or to love God. And who would dare to choose to hate him? My brothers, the preacher's tone should he was nearing the conclusion of his sermon. The love of God is a hard love. It demands total self-surrender, disdain of our human personality, and yet it alone can reconcile us to the suffering and deaths of children. It alone can justify them, since we cannot understand them, and we can only make God's will ours. That is a hard lesson I want to share with you today. That is the faith, cruel in men's eyes and crucial in God's, which we must ever strive to, to compass. We must aspire beyond ourselves toward that high and fearful vision. And on that lofty plane, all will fall into place. All discords be resolved. The truth flashed forth from the dark cloud of seeming justice. Thus, in some churches of the south of France, plague victims have lain sleeping 
many a century under the flagstones of the chancel, and priests now speak above their tombs, and the divine mention message they bring to men rises from that charnel, to which, nevertheless, children have contributed their share. When Ryu was preparing to leave the church, a violent gust swept up the nave through the half-open doors and buffeted the faces of the departing congregation. It brought with it the smell of rain, a tang of drenched sidewalks, warning them of the weather they would encounter outside. An old priest and a young deacon who were walking immediately in front of Ryu had much difficulty in keeping their headdresses from blowing away. But this did not prevent the elder of the two from discussing the sermon they had heard. He paid tribute to the preacher's eloquence, but the boldness of thought Penelou had shown gave him pause. In his opinion, the sermon had displayed more uneasiness than real power, and at Penelou's age, a priest had no business to feel uneasy. The young deacon, his head bowed to protect his face from the wind, replied that he saw much of the father and followed the evolution of his views. He believed his forthcoming pamphlet would be bolder still. Indeed, it might be it might well be refused the imprimatur. You don't mean to say so. What's the main idea? asked the old priest. They are now in the cathedral square, and for some moments the roar of the wind made it impossible for the younger man to speak. When there was a slight lull, he said briefly to his companion that it's illogical for a priest to call in a doctor. Teru, when told by the Teru, when told by Ryu what Penelou had had remarked, he had known a priest who had lost his faith during the war, and the result of seeing a young man's face with both eyes destroyed. Penelou is right, Teru continued. When innocent youth can have his eyes destroyed, a Christian should either lose his faith or consent to having his eyes destroyed. Penelou declines to lose his faith. He will go through it to the end. That's what he meant to say. It may be this remark of Teru shed some light on the regrettable events which followed, in the course of which the priest's conduct seemed inexplicable to his friends. The reader will judge for himself. A few days after the sermon, Penelou had to move out of his rooms. It was a time when many people were obliged to change their residence owing to the new conditions created by the plague. Thus, Teru, when his hotel was requisitioned, had gone to live with Ryu, and now the father had to vacate his lodgings provided to him by his order to stay in the house of a pious old lady who had so far escaped the epidemic. During the process of moving, Penelou had been feeling more run down than ever, mentally as well as physically, and it was this that put him in the bad books of his hostess. One evening when she was enthusiastically vaunting the merits of St. Odilia's prophecies, the piece betrayed a slight impatience due to probably to fatigue. All his subsequent efforts to bring the good lady round to, anyhow, a state of benevolent neutrality came to nothing. He had made a bad impression, and it went on rankling. So each night on his way to his bedroom, where almost all the furniture was dotted with crocheted covers, he had to contemplate the back of his hostess seated in her drawing room and carry away with him a memory of the sour, Good night, Father. She flung at him over her shoulder. It was on one such evening that he felt like a flood of bursting dikes, the turbulent outrush in his wrists and temples of the fever late in his blood for several past days. The only available account of what followed comes from the lips of the old lady. The next morning, she rose early, as was her wont. After an hour or so puzzled at not seeing the father leave his room, she brought herself, not with some sense of hesitation, to knock on the door. She found him still in bed after a sleepless night. He had difficulty in breathing and looked more flushed than usual. She had suggested the most politely, as she put it, that a doctor should be called in. But her suggestion had been brushed aside with the curtness that she described as quite unmannerly. So she had no alternative but to leave the room. Later in the morning, the father rang and asked if he could see her. He apologized for his lack of courtesy and assured her that what he was suffering from could not be plague, as he had none of the symptoms. It was no more than a passing indisposition. The lady replied with dignity that her suggestion had not been prompted by any apprehension of that sort. She took no thought for her personal security, which was in God's hands, but she felt a certain measure of responsibility for the father's welfare while he was under her roof. When he had said nothing, his hostess, wishing, according to account, to do her duty by him, offered to send for her doctor. Father Penelou turned her not to trouble, adding some explanations that seemed to the old lady incoherent, not to say nonsensical. The only thing she gathered was it was precisely this that appeared to her so incomprehensible, that the father refused to hear of a doctor's visit because he was against it was against his principles. Her impression was that her guest's mind had been unhinged by fever. She confined herself to bringing him a cup of tea. 
Resolutely mindful of the obligations imposed on her by her situation, she visited the invalid regularly every two hours. What struck her most about him was his restlessness, which continued throughout the day. He would throw off the blankets, then pull them back. He kept running his hand over his forehead, which was glistening with sweat. Every now and then he sat up in bed and tried to clear his throat with a click, grating cough, which sounded almost like retching. At these moments he seemed to be vainly struggling to force up from his lungs a clot of some semi-solid substance that was choking him. After such unavailing effort, he sank back, utterly exhausted, on the pillows. Then he would raise himself up a little later and stare straight in front of him with a fixity even more dismaying than the paroxysms which had preceded it. Even now the old lady was reluctant to annoy her guest by calling in the doctor. After all, it might be no more than an attack of fever, spectacular as it was manifestations. However, in the afternoon she made another attempt to talk to the priest, but she could get out of him no more than a few rambling phrases. She renewed her proposal to call in the doctor, whereat Prue set up in a stifled voice, emphatically declined to see a doctor. Under these circumstances, it seemed best to the old lady to wait until the following morning. If the father's condition showed no more improvement, she would ring up a number announced ten times daily on the radio by the Ransdock Information Bureau. Still conscious of her obligation, she resolved to visit the invalid from time to time in the course of the night and give him any attention he might need. But after bringing him a deco decoction of herbal tea, she decided to lie down for a little while. Only at daybreak did she wake up, and then she hurried to the priest's room. Father Penelope was lying quite still. His face had lost its deep flush of the previous day and had now a deathly pallor, all the more impressive because the cheeks had kept their fullness. He was gazing up at the bead fringe of the lamp hanging above his head, hanging above the bed. When the old lady came in, he turned his head to her. She quaintly put it, he looked as if he had been severely, thra severely thrashed all night long and more dead than alive. She was greatly struck by the apathy of his voice when, on asking how he was feeling, he replied that he was in a bad way. He did not need a doctor, and all he wished was to be taken to the hospital so as to comply with the regulations. Panic-stricken, she hurried to the telephone. Ryu came at noon. After hearing what the old lady had to say, he replied briefly that Panelu was right, but it was probably too late. The father welcomed him the same, with the same air of complete indifference. Ryu examined him and was surprised to find none of the characteristic symptoms of bubonic or pneumonic plague, except congestion and obstruction of the lungs. His pulse was so weak and his general state so alarming there was little hope in saving him. You have none of the specific symptoms of the disease, Ryu told him, but I admit one can't be sure, and I must isolate you. The father smiled queerly, as if for politeness' sake, but said nothing. Ryu left the room to t telephone, then came back and looked at the priest. I'll stay with you, he said gently. Pinlu showed a little more animation and a sort of warmth came back to his eyes when he looked up at the doctor. Then speaking with such difficulty that it was impossible to tell if there was sadness in his voice, he said, Thanks, but priests can have no friends. They've given their all to God. He asked for a crucifix that hung above the head of the bed. When given it, he turned away to gaze at it. At the hospital, Pinlu did not utter a word. He submitted passively to the treatment given him, but never let go of the crucifix. However, his case continued to be doubtful, and Ryu could not feel sure how to diagnose it. For several weeks, indeed, the disease had seemed to make a point of confounding diagnoses. In the case of Penelu, what followed was to show that this uncertainty had no consequence. His temperature rose. Throughout the day, the cough grew louder, racking his enfeebled body. At last, at nightfall, Penelu brought up the clot of matter that was choking him. It was red. Even at the height of his fever, Penlu's eyes kept their black serenity. And when, next morning, he was found dead, his body drooping over the bedside, they betrayed nothing. Against his name, the index card recorded, Doubtful Case. All Souls Day that year was very different from what it had been in former years. True, the weather was seasonable. There had been a sudden change in the great heat given to mild autumnal air. As in other years, a cool wind blew all day. The big clouds raced from one horizon to the other, trailing shadows over the houses upon which fell again, when they had passed the pale gold light of a November sky. The first waterproofs made their appearance. Indeed, one was struck by the number of glossy, rubberized garments to be seen. The reason was that our newspapers had informed us that 200 years previously, during the great pestilences of southern Europe, the doctors wore old clothing to safeguard against infection. The shops had seized this opportunity of unloading their stock of out-of-fashion waterproofs, 
which their purchasers fondly hoped would guarantee immunity from germs. But the familiar aspects of All Souls Day could not make us forget that cemeteries were left unvisited. In previous years, the rather sickly smell of chrysanthemums had filled the streetcars, while long lines of women could be seen making pilgrimage to the places where members of their family were buried to lay flowers on the graves. This was the day when they made amends for the oblivion and dereliction in which their dead had slept the long for many a long month. But in the plague year, people no longer wished to be reminded of their dead, because indeed they were all thinking all too much about them as it was. There was no more question of revisiting them with a shade of regret and much melancholy. They were no longer forsaken to whom, one day in the year, you come to justify yourself. They were intruders whom you would rather forget. This is why the Day of the Dead this year was tacitly but willfully ignored. As Qatar dryly remarked, Teru noted that the habit of irony was growing on him more and more. Each day was for us a Day of the Dead. And in fact, the bale fires of the pestilence were blazing ever more merrily in the crematorium. It is true that the actual number of deaths showed no increase, but it seemed that the plague had settled in for good at its most virulent and took its daily toll of deaths with the punctual zeal of a good civil servant. Theoretically, and in the view of the authorities, this was a hopeful sign. The fact that the graph, after a long rising curve, had flattened out seemed to, seemed to many. Dr. Richard, for example, reassuring. The graph's good today, he would remark, rubbing his hands. To his mind, the disease had reached what he called the high water mark. Thereafter, it could but ebb. He gave cre credit of this to Dr. Cassell's new serum, which indeed had brought off some quite unlooked-for recoveries. While not dissenting, the old doctor reminded him of the future remained uncertain. History proved the epidemics of a way of recriticizing when least expected. The authorities, who had long been desirous of giving a fillip to the morale of, a, of the populace, but had so far been prevented by the, the plague from doing so, now proposed to convene a meeting on the, of the medical corpse and ask for an announcement on the subject. Unfortunately, just before the meeting was due, to take place, Dr. Richard, too, was carried off by the plague, then precisely at the high water mark. The effect of the, this regrettable event, which was sensationalized as it was, actually proved nothing, was to make our authorities swing back to the pessimism and inconsequently, as they had previously indulged in optimism. As for Castell, he confined himself to preparing his serums with the maximum of care. By this time, no public place or building had escaped conversation conversion into a hospital or a quarantine camp, with the exception of the prefect's offices, which were needed for administrative purposes and committee meetings. In a general way, however, owing to the relative stability of the epidemic at this time, reuse organizations were still able to cope with the situation. Though working constantly at high pressure, the doctors and their helpers were not forced to contemplate still greater efforts. They had, they, all they had to do was carry on automatically, so to speak. They're all but superhuman task. The pneumonic type of infection, cases which had already been detected, was now spreading all over town. One could almost believe that the high winds were kindling and fanning its flames in people's chests. The victims of pneumonic plagues succumbed much more quickly after copying up blood-stained sputum. This new form of, of the epidemic looked as if it was more contagious as well as even more fatal. However, the opinions of experts had always been divided on this matter. For greater safety, all sanitary workers wore masks of sterilized muslin. On the face of it, the disease should have, been extend, should have extended its ravages. But the cases of bubonic plague showing a decrease, the death rate remained constant. Meanwhile, the authorities had another cause for anxiety in the difficulty of maintaining the food supply. Profiteers were taking a hand in purveying at enormous prices essential foodstuffs not available in the shops. The result was that poor families were in great straits, while the rich were short of practically nothing. Thus, whereas the plague by its impartial administration should have promoted equality among our townsfolk, it now had the opposite effect, and thanks to the habitual conflict of cupidities, exasperated the sense of injustice rankling in men's hearts. They were assured, of course, by the inerrable quality, equality of death, but nobody wanted that kind of equality. Poor people who were feeling the pinch thought still more nostalgically of towns and villages in the nearby countryside where bread was cheap and life without restrictions. Indeed, they had a natural, if illogical, feeling that if they should be permitted to move out of these to these happier places. The feeling was embodied in a slogan shout in the streets and chalked on the walls, bread or fresh air. 
This half-ironical battle cry was the signal for some demonstrations that, though easily repressed, made everyone aware that an ugly mood was developing among us. The newspapers, needless to say, complied with the instructions given to them. Optimism at all costs. If one was giving to believe what one read on them, our populace was giving a fine example of courage and composure. But in a town throw back on itself, in which nothing could be kept secret, no one had illusions about the example given by the public. To form a correct idea about the courage and composure talked about by our journalists, you had only to visit one of the quarantine depots or isolation camps established by our authorities. As it so happens, the narrator being fully occupied elsewhere had no occasion to visit any of them. It must fall back on True's diary for a description of the conditions of these places. True gives an account of a visit he made, accompanied by Rimbert, to the camp located in the municipal stadium. The stadium lies in the outskirts of the town, between a street along which runs a car line and a stretch of wasteland extending to the extreme edge of the plateau on which Rand is built. It was already surrounded by high concrete walls, and all that was needed to make it make escape practically impossible was to post sentries at the four entrance gates. The walls serve another purpose. They screen the unfortunates in they screen the unfortunates in quarantine from view of the people of the road. Against this advantage may be set the fact that the inmates could hear all day, though they could not see them. The passing streetcars and recognize the increased volume of the sound coming from the road, the hours when people had knocked off work or were going to it. And this brought home to them that the life from which they were debarred was going on as before, within a few yards of them, and that those high walls parted two worlds as alien to each other as two different planets. Turin and Bear chose a Sunday afternoon for their visit to the stadium, when they were accompanied by Gonzalez, the football player, with whom Rembert had kept in contact and whom he let himself be persuaded into undertaking, in rotation with others, the surveillance of the camp. This visit was to enable Rembert to introduce Gonzalez to the camp commandant. When they met that afternoon, Gonzalez's first remark was that this was exactly the time when, before the plague, he used to start getting into his football togs. Now that the sport field has been requisitioned, all was all that was left of the past, and Gonzalez was feeling and sh- showed it at a loose end. This was one of the reasons why he accepted the post proposed by Rimbert, but he made it a condition that he was to be on duty only during weekends. The sky was overcast, and glancing up at it, Gonzalez observed regretfully that a day like this, neither too hot nor rainy, would have been perfect for a game. And then he fell to conjuring up, as best he could, the once familiar smell of embrocation in the dressing rooms, the stands crowded with people, the colored shirts of players, showing up brightly against the tawny soil. The lemons at intermission or bottled lemonade that titillated parched throats with a thousand refreshing pinpricks. Drew also records how, on this way, they walked down the shabby outer streets. The footballer gave kicks to all the small loose stones. His object was to shoot them into the sewer holes of the gutters. Whenever he did this, he would shout, Goal! When he had finished his cigarette, he spat the stub in front of him and tried to catch it in his toe before it touched the ground. Some children were playing near the stadium. One of them sent a ball toward the three men. Gonzalez went out of his way to return it neatly. On entering the stadium, they found the stands full of people. A field was dotted with several hundred red tents, inside of which one had glimpses of bedding and bundles of cloth, um, clothes, or rugs. The stands had been kept open for the use of the internees in hot or rainy weather. It was a rule of the camp that everyone must be in his or her tent at sunset. Shower baths had been installed under the stands, and what used to be the players' dressing rooms converted into offices and infirmaries. The majority of the inmates of the camp were sitting, sitting about in the stands. Some, however, were strolling on the touch lines, and a few squatting at the entrances of their tents were listening, con- listening, listlessly contemplating the scene around them. In the stands, many of those slumped on the wooden tiers and had the look of vague expectancy. What did they do with themselves all day, True asked Rimbert. Nothing. Almost all, indeed, had empty hands and idly dangling arms. Another curious thing about the multitude of derelicts was its silence. When they first came, there was such a din you couldn't hear yourself speak, Rimbert said. But as the day went on, they went quieter and quieter. His notes true gave what to his mind to explain this change. He pictures them in clearly early days bundled together in the tents, listening to the buzzflies of scratching themselves. Whenever they found an obliging listener, they shrilly voicing their fear of indignation. And when the camp grew overcrowded, fewer and fewer people were inclined to play the part of the sympathetic listener. 
so they had no choice but to hold their peace and nurse their mistrust of everything and everyone. One had, indeed, a feeling that suspicion was falling dew-like from the gaily shining sky over the brick-red camp. Yes, there was suspicion in the eyes of all. Obviously, they were thinking. There must be some good reason for the isolation inflicted upon them, and they had the air of people who were puzzling over their problem and are afraid. Everyone, Teresa, his eyes on had that vacant gaze and was visibly suffering from the complete break with all that life had meant to him. And since they could not be thinking of their death all the time, they thought of nothing. They were on vacation. But worst of all, Teru writes, it's that they are forgotten, and they know it. Their friends have forgotten them because they have other things to think about, naturally enough. And they and those they love have forgotten them because all their energies are devoted to making schemes and taking steps to get them out of the camp. And by dint of always thinking about the, these schemes and steps, they cease thinking about those whose release they are trying to secure. And that, too, is natural enough. In fact, it comes to this. Nobody is capable of really thinking of any about, about anyone, even the worst calamity. For really, to think about someone means to thinking about that person every minute of the day, without letting one's thought be diverted by anything, by meals, by a fly that settles on one's cheek, by household duties, or by a certain itch somewhere. But there are always, there are always flies and itches. That's why life is difficult to live, and these people know it only too well. The camp manager came up. A gentleman named Othan, he said, would like to see them. Leaving Gonzales in the office, he led the others to a corner of the grandstand, where they saw Monsieur Athan sitting by himself. He rose as they approached. The magistrate was dressed exactly as in the past, and still wore a stiff collar. The only changes True noted were the tufts of hair over his temples were not brushed back, and that one of his shoelaces was undone. Monsieur Athan appeared very tired, and not once did he look at his visitors in the face. He said he was glad to see them, and he requested them to thank Dr. Ryu for all he had done. Some moments of silence ensued, though with much, much effort, the magistrate spoke again. I hope Jacques did not suffer too much. This is the first time True heard him utter his son's name, and he realized something had changed. The sun was setting and flooding through the rift in the clouds. Their level rays raked the stands, tinging their faces with the yellow glow. No, True said. No, I can't really say he suffered. When they took their leave, the magistrate was still gazing toward the light. They called at the office to say goodbye to Gonzales, whom they had found studying the duty roster. The footballer was laughing when he shook hands with them. Anyhow, I'm back to the good old dressing room, he chuckled, and that's something to go on with. Soon after, the camp manager was seeing Teru and Rambert out. Then he heard a crackling noise coming from the stands. A moment later, the loudspeakers, which in happier times served to announce the results of the games or to introduce the teams, informed the inmates of the camp that they were to go back to their tents for the evening meal. Slowly, everyone filed off the stands and shuffled toward the tents. After all, they were under canvas, two small electric trunks of the kind used for transporting baggage of railroad platforms began to wend their way through the tents. While the occupants held forth their arms, two ladles plunged into a two big cauldrons on each truck and neatly tipped their contents into the waiting mess kits, and the truck moved on to the next tent. Very efficient, to remarked. The camp manager beamed as he shook hands. Yes, isn't it? We're great believers in efficiency in this camp. Dusk was falling. The sky had cleared and the camp was bathed in cool, soft light. Through the hush of the evening came a faint tinkle of spoons and plates. Above the tents, bats were circling, vanishing abruptly into the darkness. A streetcar squealed on a switch outside the walls. Poor Monsieur Othon, Terry murmured as the gate closed behind them. One would like to do something to help him. But how can you help a judge?